Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener. Online at ctf.nu. Here's Tom and Keith. It is that time once again. You look at your outlook, specifically at the calendar, and this is your favorite moment of the week. The front row is back. KJ, how are you? It's highlighted on my calendar, but I guess that's supposed to be that way, right? Despite that, you're only here on time, what, one out of eight, ten times? Hey, hey do we need to bring personal stuff in? I didn't uh, ask you what you had for dessert last night. You were you were the first one here today. Yes, I was. Well, actually, that's not true. T. Lang was here. He's always here. Well, T- I think he lives yeah, here. I think T- he's got a cot across the way over there. He's the hamster in the wheel that keeps his place going. There's no question about that. I was going to call him a gerbil. Uh, KJ, uh, we're going to move this conversation along rather quickly. Uh, basketball is on the brain, and we'll start there as we have a, a big one tonight. Very much so. And, uh, you know, you go back and you look, and, and it's been talked about, uh, the North Carolina game. Uh, you get down to about four, four and a half minutes to go. You're down by four, an opportunity for two free throws. If you make those free throws, I'm not saying that changes everything but it certainly has a chance to change the momentum and then of course carolina showed why they played for the national championship last year they just uh, uh reload with their people uh and end up winning by double digits uh, i think the interest two interesting things number one you walk away from a loss against unc and you don't feel bad you don't you don't really feel bad you were there you, you there's some things you need to do and clean up to get better and number two you're still above the curve on this gauntlet of six in a row and you're very very you're feeling very very good about your opportunities against Notre Dame and Louisville as you get ready for those two games to your first point I would agree because there were several times during that game with Carolina that the Tar Heels delivered what they thought would be the knockout blow and it turned out not to be and at times passed at times passed years passed they would have been knockout blows to your second point yes and this is as has been chronicled and documented now it's the only the third time in ACC history that a school has played six straight ranked opponents during the regular season. And already FSU has exceeded what the previous two teams did, which was Maryland and NC State. By Maryland, winning, Maryland was 0-6, by the way. By winning three games. I, I would suggest this. Uh, even if Florida State goes 0-2, you're still in fine shape. But from a momentum, feel good about the program standpoint, it would be much better if you can come out of tonight and Saturday at least 1-1, one and one, and I know that there's a lot of folks who think FSU can go 2-0. and oh. That's not going to be easy, but uh, they did beat Virginia Tech and Duke in back-to-back games not too long ago here at home, so why not do Notre Dame and Louisville? Exactly, and it's interesting, too, that one of the things about this team, and whether it's the team, whether it's the coaching staff, or this coaching staff with this team, when they lost to Temple, they learned something, and they've not let that repeat itself. There's a couple of lessons we'll see if they learn from in the Carolina game, I eat. You got to make free throws. I mean, particularly in the second half, particularly the front end of one and ones. Have you learned that lesson? You don't go to the line, bounce the ball one time, and shoot with one point two seconds after you've received the ball. Take the ball, look at the rim, bounce a couple of times, focus, and then shoot the ball. X. And make sure that you understand and appreciate the importance of those free throws. Let's see if they do that going forward. And secondly, remember, you withstood the runs that only a Carolina can make. Don't panic when those runs come from someone else. So let's talk about the free throw shooting for a little bit. As a team right now, Florida State is 69%. It's middle of the pack. 
180th in the nation or something like that. Uh, if you factored out the North Carolina game, they were probably at 71% or so going in because it was abysmal against the Tar Heels. But here's the point I was going to What's odd is stereotyping. Big guys usually can't shoot free throws and guards can. And yet if you look at FSU, Jonathan Isaac, big guy, grew up as a guard, but Nevertheless, big guy shooting very well. Ojo. Ojo. Shooting very well. I think Jojo's made so, 12 of his last 13. And you look at it, and you mentioned X. X is 61% at the free throw line this year. P.J. Savoy, who could shoot from where we're sitting and swish it at the Tucker Center, is barely above 50% from the stripe. Now, granted, that's a small sample size. How far size. back can he move? Can he go all the way back to the, yeah, <laughs> back exactly. to the circle? He, he's amazing. And, and again, by the way, against Carolina, he hit his first three-pointer of the game. Did you notice that? The, it's like the, four, Tom, the Tom Block stat tonight, of the year. The guy will sit there for 16 minutes. They'll bring him in at the four-minute mark, and he'll go up. He'll be on the court three seconds. He'll shoot it when he touches it, and it'll go in his first try. It's, it's phenomenal. But anyway, and, and then you have some freshman guards, and I understand, uh, or newcomers, that uh, you know have to acclimate a little bit. So, for example, I bet if we broke down C.J. Walker and Trent Forrest, and Walker's actually at seventy-seven percent, but Trent Forrest, it feels like at sixty-six percent, feels like he started like two for eight or something this year. So he's probably better than that over the last twelve games. Or the so. other thing you do is you go back, particularly if you look at the three wins in the beginning of that six-run gauntlet, and you look at Florida State's free throws in the second half. There's one game I can't remember which it was, but I remember they were thirteen of sixteen from the free throw line in the second half. That's when you've got to make your free throws. And that's the point I'm speaking to relative to end of game and, and latter, latter part of the second half game. I, I agree with you. Now, let me ask this, because you've seen a lot of basketball up close. And one of the things that drives me crazy about basketball is that it is not officiated consistently game to game. And I'm not suggesting that there were bad calls in the Carolina FSU game. There's calls that could go either way in all those games. The bigger point is that when you watch a game and they whistle a foul every possession, there's just absolutely no flow to it. That, and we've that's seen one a, of the dangers. We, we've seen a couple of them this year. And I know that they're pulling – I mean, if every 12 seconds you can't even get through a possession without going to the free throw line, it just it's, – it's not fun. When, when, when the Carolina crowd, all 21,700 of them, however many were there, can in unison begin the chant, let them play, let them play, then you know there's something going on. Uh, I agree. I don't know – I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I do know that the emphasis on hand checking and those types of things on the defensive end is causing an increase in the number of fouls this particular year. But there needs to be something uh, looked at or continuing to be looked at uh, and truly let them play. Let's don't get caught up in the nitpicky stuff. I would sort of, you know, the hand checking and, and it's always the disparity between physical, looks like an offensive lineman, defensive lineman under the basket and they let it go. And then because it's the letter of the rule, somebody kind of reaches in, doesn't affect From 28 anything, feet away. And they, they blow the whistle. To me, that almost needs to be more like tripping. You know, if, if you actually tripped the guy, and this is not a Grayson Allen rant, but, it, you know, if you inadvertently tripped him, you're going to blow the whistle. But if you didn't and it didn't affect the play, then so what if I touched you on the tricep when I was trying to reach in and slap the ball? It just, it just becomes too much at some point. I, and I agree. Again, don't know what the answer is. Uh, recognize the problem. Yes, as we have and we're good at that. Consistently done. We have identified the problem. So uh, Notre Dame tonight. What do you think? They can shoot the three. They can. Obviously, they can shoot free throws. Notre Dame's a very good free throw shooting team because they drive and get to the basket and get to the free throw line. Uh, you got to extend your defense, which uh, Florida State's shown a propensity to do. You got to stay out of foul trouble. Uh, the other thing that's a sneaky thing that Florida State hasn't been as good at because teams are now paying attention to, but. 
They've got to find a way to get back out in the transition game. Not enough fast break points, either off of made baskets or missed baskets. Florida State's got to find a way to push the basketball against Notre Dame tonight. Well, they, they can, they've got several guys that are shooting better than 40% on threes. Yeah, pushing the basketball always uh, does a couple things. One, I think it gets guys to stop thinking because they got an easy basket, so they're they not worried. They just use their about, talents. And two, especially at home, it's going to get the crowd into it. Yeah. And the good news there is that uh, – you know, I don't know that we're completely sold out tonight, but it's going to be a great environment. Louisville is sold out. So we got back-to-back games here. They're going to draw a big crowd. Plus, we got the basketball reunion uh, over Louisville weekend. And last count, 91. 91 former Florida State uh, hoopsters will be back in attendance. Uh, so that's always a good time. Uh, so, yeah, a couple of, couple of real nice outings for Florida State basketball as we finish up the middle and end of this week. And, by the way, ever since we had that conversation a couple weeks ago, which, to be fair, I – I tried to bait you, and you didn't take the bait about Jonathan Isaac sort of struggling. He's sort of awoken from whatever perceived slumber there might have been. I, I, I had a conversation with him. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. that. All right. Well, we're going to have a conversation with our Seminoles.com insider, Tim Linnefelt, uh, when we continue. Uh, no rapid fire this week, but uh, we'll try to stump him nevertheless when the front row rolls on. The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom and Keith. Ah, yes, that music can mean only one thing. Seminoles.com insider Tim Linnefeld is lurking. He will uh, make an appearance, his regularly scheduled appearance momentarily. But first, Keith and I need to remind you that uh, the uh, the fine folks at Madison Social and Centrale and Township uh, are doing it big and grand style uh, on Madison Street as per usual. Keith, you may not be aware, and I think this started out of St. Patty's Day, but the 17th of every month they have Reuben Day, which was uh, earlier this week. Uh, that's at Madison Social. But here's a good one uh, at, at Centrale. It, it, it people have asked about the mozzarella there so uh they're gonna go ahead and mozzarella uh, they're gonna have a mozzarella making class Ooh. saturday january 28th at 6 and seven thirty. the and here's the admission the admission is you got to buy a cocktail basically you buy a glass of wine or a beer i was gonna do that anyway it, chances are if you're gonna be there you're probably gonna do that and and they'll teach you the i don't know if they'll give you all the fine secrets but they'll at least give you the the beginner's course uh and township uh, i mentioned uh, recently i've been there uh for lunch enjoyed it I've not had a cocktail there yet because I don't do that at lunch, but uh, it appears to be a good place and was a good time. At, Whatever at, happened to the three martini lunch? I don't know. Nor do I. Tim Linnefeld, our Seminoles.com insider, joins us now Maybe he knows via that. the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. Tim, whatever happened to the three martini lunch? You know, it's funny you, you asked that, and we're, we're kind of starting off with a digression, but uh, it, in keeping with my tradition of being about 10 years behind on just about everything pop culture related, I, I started watching that uh, Mad Men, that show, you familiar with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah and, yeah. and literally an episode last night, they were uh, they were drinking, they were just throwing back martinis uh, and eating raw oysters, and then like they went back to the office, like, man, what what was this era? Did this, did this actually happen? And and one, like it's kind of awesome. And two, how in the world did they function? And that was kind of the joke: is that they really didn't function. But uh, but yeah, I, I I was wondering the same thing. It's, we're on the same list today. I'm not going to name names, but there's somebody's spouse associated with the front row who's from New Orleans, 
And uh, not uncommon today still that uh, there might be some imbibing done during business lunches uh, in New Orleans. If you can, Certain, if you can picture sections that. of the country is what you're saying. Yes. Uh, all right. So let's uh, let's get back to the business at hand, which is basketball. And there continues to be a buzz about hoops. And first things first, Tim, I, we need a ruling on this. Do we need to change the walk-up music in light of what happened in, in Chapel Hill? Or we just uh-uh. go with, with the, you know, I mean, you don't win them all in basketball and we stick with what's got us to this point. I say let's start with the free throws. Uh, and if we tighten that up and still have problems, then we can discuss the walk-up music. But I feel like there's a, a, a higher priority list of, of things that, that went wrong there. And they tighten up on the offensive glass a little bit, and then we can look at the music. But no, that's, uh, I don't know. It, it was kind of a frustrating game from Florida State's perspective just because you felt like they could have played so much better. Uh, and if they played a little bit better, they they could have won. I don't think that it was a 13-point difference between those two teams. It's kind of the way it goes sometimes in college basketball with fouls and free throws at the end uh so you know you can kind of look at it in one of two ways is that it's frustrating because they didn't play their best game uh and lost but yeah you could also look at it if if you want to look at it this way that they didn't play their best game and you know we're right there with one of the most talented teams in the country in their building uh, and had things done a little bit differently uh it could have easily won the game so uh, i i see both sides of it i think both points are probably a little bit valid so how do you feel about tonight I feel pretty good about tonight. Uh, I think Florida State usually plays Notre Dame pretty well uh, for one reason or another. The way that Notre Dame plays uh, it, it sort of matches up with Florida State's system pretty well. So I think they're, they'll be – that's not to say that they're, they're guaranteed to win. I mean, Notre Dame is really, really good, and they lead the nation in free throw percentage. They're second in the ACC in three-point percentage. So the defense is going to have to be good both on the perimeter, and you have to be careful when you're fouling guys because odds are they're going to knock down their free throws. Uh, and, you know, so again, like like it was – a couple days ago, free throws could once again be sort of in the spotlight. But I do think that, that Florida State, no matter what happens, I think you're going to see that Florida State belongs on the floor with Notre Dame, and, and the teams are probably pretty closely matched. Florida State probably has the edge in athleticism and, and speed and probably overall talent, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and then you know, Notre Dame, I think just they do sort of all the little de- all the little things right, the details right. So it should be a, a pretty good uh, – contrast of styles and and what i expect probably a close game well a little known fact that i'm uh, willing to go ahead and go out on the line and share with our listeners is is leonard has uh, appointed me as in charge of one aspect of the florida state basketball program i am in charge of opponents free throw percentage oh well how'd that work out every day is a new day do you feel (laughs) confident about the plan you have in place for tonight well, I, I, I thought about using a laser, and then I found out that was illegal. They could throw me out of the building. Other than that, I got nothing. Well, the good news for Florida State is they're back at home here. And, and uh, as you look at Notre Dame's schedule, uh, they have been good on the road. Good overall, but good on the road. But I think for Florida State in particular, with the atmosphere that FSU is going to have uh, tonight and Saturday, uh, it's exciting times, Tim, to know that you're going to have actually a home court edge, which – to be frank, Leonard's in his 15th year, and you could probably count on fingers and toes, maybe just fingers, how many times there's truly been a great atmosphere in the Tucker Center. Oh, sure. And one of them was last week against Duke. I expect another one tonight and on Saturday. I mean, think about, you're talking about fingers and toes. The last time we knew that, that two straight Florida State home basketball games uh, were going to be sold out or really close to it. And, and we know that now, man. I, it hasn't happened since I've been following. Uh, now, you, you can see games sell out individually, but to know that that, that a game, you know, 
games into the future uh, are already attracting big crowds. Uh, it's, uh, it's a cool thing, and it's a really exciting time to be. I think we talked about this last week, Florida State basketball fan. The, the, the men are rolling. The women's basketball team is rolling. They just crushed Clemson the other day, and, and they'll play uh, play the national runner-up this week in Syracuse. So uh, a lot going on over here, and it's funny. When, uh, when, when the teams are doing well and the basketball teams are doing well, all of a sudden the, the, the January and February months, it feels like they move a little bit faster and that, that calendar starts flipping towards March in a hurry. You know, you can you start looking at the schedule uh, remaining for the, for the Florida State men. Uh, you, you sort of do your, move, move your finger down the line to see, you know, all right, where are they going? Who, who can they beat? What's going to be a tough game? And it doesn't take all that long. And all of a sudden you're, you're at that ACC tournament. So uh, it's all that to say, it's funny what, what spring and some wins together will do and, and create some momentum and some buzz, and it's, it's an exciting time for sure. And transitioning into uh, our next subject, uh, at the Duke game, uh, they introduced the early enrollees. There were six or seven uh, football signees that had enrolled early, which leads us to uh, the February 1 Wednesday signing date, which leads us to some verbal commitments over the weekend and, and Florida State's recruiting class continuing to, to take shape and, and Florida State continuing to rise on that uh, hierarchy of uh, uh, class uh, rankings. Sure, it's it's really sort of maintaining what they've uh, what they've been able to do uh and i know we guess we talked about it a little bit but the uh the early enrollees i think are are a big deal one i mean it's, it's what we always say every year as far as getting those guys in getting them acclimated to college life they'll be able to participate in fourth quarter drills and spring football and all that but then you know when i look at that group of early enrollees and you saw them at the basketball game one uh, they look like physically like they belong i know it's like we say that every year but every single year it seems more and more like you know Guys are arriving physically looking like they're sophomores, juniors, some even seniors in terms of you know what they'll look like when they put on the the, the, pe- the helmet and shoulder pads. Uh, the other thing that jumped out to me from a recruiting perspective, and, and the guys I can talk about are the ones that, that have signed, is the Florida State signed three five-star guys uh, at positions of need, at positions where you're losing somebody important. Uh, you know, Cam Akers, the running back from Mississippi, is, is coming in when you lose Dalvin Cook. Uh, Joshua Kane, though, the defensive end, is coming in when you lose Demarcus Walker. Uh, Stanford Samuels the third is coming in when you lose uh, a Marquez White, so you're, you're replenishing some key players at, at key places on the field with players who, if, if they're not necessarily, you know, I don't, I don't know that we expect them to perform at those same levels as true freshmen, but literally the the best high school pedigree that you can have, that's who's coming in to replenish those stores, and so uh, I, I don't know if you could ask for a whole lot more if you're Jimbo Fisher or a Florida State fan for that for that matter. Tim, on the offensive line, Rod Johnson turns pro. Alec Eberly, the news comes out, he needs surgery. He's out for the spring. Uh, Landon Dickerson's coming off a torn ACL. I know they got a lot of bodies last year, but should we be concerned at the OL? I don't know. I would be more concerned for individual guys than uh, than overall. Uh, I, I do think, like you said, that's, that's part of the reason that you have so much depth. And then, look, you're not going to be better by losing Roderick Johnson. But I you know, we're sort of grading on a curve here, I guess. And whereas, if you remember two years ago, they, they literally couldn't field two offensive lines in the spring game. That's that's where things were uh, in terms of depth and injury uh, injuries on the offensive line. Now, even with the, some of the attrition and injuries this year, that's again, unless something happens between now and then, that's not going to be an issue. And I do think it would give an opportunity. Look, at this point, we know what Alec Everly can do. He's he's been a starter at Florida State. I think you know, assuming his surgery goes well, he's still going to have the inside track to be the starter again this fall, but it gives an opportunity for some other guys who have been out with some of those injuries, who've dealt with injuries, somebody like, you know, Corey Martinez, 
or Cole Minshew, give them some opportunities to get some extended reps that maybe they weren't able to get because they've been dealing with injuries of their own. So I don't necessarily, you know, you would like to be at full strength. It's not a good thing when you're not, but especially in the spring, if you can get some guys, some extended action that maybe weren't able to before, uh, I, I do think that's a, at least a pretty nice silver lining. At the receiver position then, there's not the depth that there is on the OL. I know that they're going to bring some guys in once they get them signed, but is there anybody that could flip positions? Do we see Maven Saunders split out in four wide sets more just to get them some depth there? Is there any reason to be concerned there? I can see them them kind of getting creative with Maven. I don't know that they'll ever you know switch his position. I think he'll always be listed as a tight end, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they sort of moved him around a little bit or even moved Ryan Izzo around a little bit. Uh, to, to try to create some of those matchups and, and get a little bit more, uh, I don't know if aggressive is the word, but it's just to try some things out, and, and spring is sort of when you can do that. But no, I wouldn't worry too much. Like you said, you're, you're bringing guys in. I think given the uh, the nucleus of what you have there with uh, with Nyquan Murray and then Auden Tate, assuming those guys take some extra steps forward, uh, and then Keith Gavin, uh, we'll see if, if that kick return from the Orange Bowl can spark him to bigger and better things. I know talking to him after the game, that was sort of his his impression was that you know he he had said that, that this year was a learning year for him uh, and that he feels like he's kind of to the point where he knows the playbook and he, he expects big things out of himself and you saw in, in that game physically what 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 a, uh, a sort of a monster he is the, the the Michigan return team was just sort of bouncing off of him uh, despite the fact that he you know really kind of made a mistake on the play uh, so the fact that you can do that um, assuming he makes another step from from year one to year two. Uh, again, it's it's not um, the, the depth, like you said, isn't there as, as much as you would like. But I do think talent uh, is there, and, and the, the potential is there. So I, I guess overall, you know, I, I don't worry about a whole lot in the spring, and I don't know that, that people necessarily should either. Uh, if, if it gets to the fall and, and you're still, you know, worried about those types of things, are there still concerns? And that's one thing. But in the spring, to me, it's more about just kind of getting guys better, uh, working on fundamentals, and then maybe trying out a few things that could apply. Uh, for fall, but but you know I look at the receivers more as an opportunity to get those young players, the freshmen, the sophomores, the rising sophomores and juniors, just making strides uh, to be ready for the fall. Well, and don't forget, uh, and we saw this with Dalvin during the year. You can always re- move Rasul out. You can move Green out. You can put them in the slot. You you can get some speed out there. That the, just because they don't have a WR behind their title doesn't mean they can't be effective, particularly in that four five wide set. Tim, baseball got a preseason number three national ranking. Uh, shoot, the Golden Girls finished number nine in the country this week. We're just top ten in everything these days. But uh, how does number three feel for Mike Martin's troops? I think it feels pretty appropriate. And it's kind of funny when you think about how not this season, but the 2015 season ended down in Gainesville and everybody was sort of down in the dumps and feeling like you know, the program was falling behind or whatever the case may be. And then, then now here we are two years later. Uh, number three in the country, and and it kind of feels right, especially when you consider what they were able to accomplish last year with with some of the the young guys that came in. You have talented young players uh, at, at just about everywhere, certainly in your pitching staff uh, with with Carlton and and Carson Sands. Uh, excuse me, Cole Sands. I still mix him up with his brother. Several years later, Cal Raleigh behind the plate. Uh, you have so much talent returning from a team that that maybe uh, was a little bit ahead of schedule last year. Uh, I, I, you know, I remember walking out of uh, Gainesville last year thinking, you know, as, as frustrated as you were to, to lose to Florida in the Super Regionals, uh, how could you not be excited about what's coming back? And, and I think given, given that you have, you know, with the rules of college baseball, players who were freshmen last year are, are still going to be here for another two years, or at least expect them to be here for another two years. 
Uh, if you're Mike Martin, I don't know that you could ask for, for a whole lot more than the, the, the two-year run, this two-year window that you seem like you might have uh, going forward. So it's, 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 you know, it's as much optimism to me surrounding the Florida State baseball team and program, uh, maybe as there's been in, what, four years, the last time they went to the College World Series. Uh, that's, that's kind of what it feels like to me, and it's a complete difference uh, than, than sort of what it felt like a year ago at this time. We'll get you out of here on this, Tim, and we may have discussed, in which case I've already given you this answer, but since we're top ten in everything, what's the last year that football, men's basketball, and baseball all finished in the top ten? Oh, my gosh. You know this? You have this? I do. Would it have been 93? Add Jeopardy music here. No, that's a good guess. That's the last year that FSU basketball and football both finished in the top ten, 92-93. Baseball wasn't there? 91-92. The okay, early, I was, you weren't too you, far off. No, you weren't too far off. Considering, uh, you know, what were you negative age at that point? You know, we'll give well, you 90, just a just on, a glimmer <laughs> in his daddy's eye. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I, uh, I, I can assure you that I was in fact very alive. All right. So. Uh, uh, we are very much uh, dead in terms of uh, this conversation right now. Tim, appreciate oh, it. Oh come on. <laughs> Our Seminoles.com <laughs> right, insider. We'll see you at the Tuck tonight. That is uh, Tim Linnefelt, uh on the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, <laughs> and we'll react. Keith wants to say something, but we got to pay bills. Break time, then we'll discuss it on the front row. Front Row is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener. Two locations to choose from, 1110 Stuckey Avenue and 3269 Crawfordville Highway. Call them at 580-1200 or online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Back on the front row, a reminder that uh, coming up next segment, uh, Todd Berry will join us. Uh, He is the executive director of the American Football Coaches Association. We'll talk about some of the uh, proposed changes, uh, most notably uh, adding a 10th assistant coach, tweaking the red shirt rule. Early signing period. Early signing period as well. So we'll address that next. Uh, So that conversation with Tim, good as always. Uh, I should point out that uh, we are – uh, recording early today because you have to be in the uh basketball the co-pilot's chair next to gene uh for tonight's broadcast against notre dame which uh, does not require a whole lot of airplane manipulation if you've ever noticed in other words gene can fly the thing by himself pretty much yeah you might not want to state that on the record but uh, he's pretty good at doing that he's, he's, he's reasonably experienced and fairly well respected i don't know if you picked up on that i uh thinking back to what tim was talking about just reading your uh, body language here I sense that you're not too concerned about the OL or the wide receiver situation at present. Not really. And, and again, probably because I'm in Tim's camp. Spring is a time to experiment, to, to do some things. You know, one of the things we keep forgetting about that leads to success is the ability to play in bowl games. Because the first six or eight practices during bowl prep are really fundamental practices. So you'll hear coaches talk about you, you get a new spring it's not quite a new spring, but you get half a spring in December to work with the young guys. Well, now the full spring is there. You got the 15 days, obviously two of them you have to do through the, you know, what they call acclimation days and shorts. But you get the ability to go out and, and, and play the youngsters that, 
you know, haven't had an opportunity to do anything other than hold a dummy or line up like the opposing team uh, on the scout squad. And and so I don't really worry. I mean, the numbers will take care of itself. I read an article uh, earlier this week that if you count up all of Florida State's commitments and compare them to their current roster, you know, there's like eight too many kids that Florida State doesn't have scholarships for. Well, it's like that every year. That type of thing takes care of itself. The wide receiver, who's going to play, who's not going to play. The offensive line, who's going to be there, who's out injured. It just kind of takes care of itself. That's the way life in, in college football is by the time, you know, first ball game in, in, in 2017 shows up. I'll tell you where I'm concerned, and then I have a question on a separate topic. Quarterback depth. I don't disagree with you. I mean, I've we, been wondering if Jimbo's going to pull a QB out of the hat somewhere. I don't know where, but if something, you know, I mean, look at the beating Francois took. Now, he's a tough kid, but it was still a beating, and if he goes down, you're forced to play a true freshman or Cosentino right now. And unless there's – unless you line up Cam Akers, who was a pretty good quarterback. He was. I mean, <laughs> and, and I think that is – He's also a true freshman. And I think that is a legitimate concern – uh, I, you know, Florida State has had a, a a group of quarterbacks that have come in, and, and we've also had a group of quarterbacks that left. You know, Trickett left. Um, name just left me, won a national championship. Coker. Coker. Uh, you know, uh, I just, John Franklin III. I, I just read uh, earlier this week that uh, Malik Henry uh, has landed at a, at a community college in Kansas. You know, so there's been some kids that have come in and left, and you you would like to think, although eligibility wise, those guys were not a candidate other than Malik. But you know, how does all that fit in? And that, that's kind of one of the dangers of having a Winston and handing a Francois. I mean, you know, they're they're going to be here for another year or two, and how, you know, if you're a quarterback out of high school wanting to sign and get early playing time, I think and that's, blah blah blah. That, that's absolutely the point that people who get wrapped up in recruiting disregard at times so you can make a sweeping statement that all of a sudden Jimbo's lost his touch he can't go find quarterbacks well no he's got a guy coming back that's going to start for at least the next two years exactly uh he, you know, I'm not saying you couldn't go out and find somebody that could beat DeAndre but Al, you're, but not, gonna harder sign, you're not going to you're not going to sign a five-star yeah it's a, it's a harder it's gonna sell. be a, it's going to be an underling or someone that you've paid attention to since sophomore or junior camps that that isn't on everybody else's radar that you have confidence in so here's the other topic and I don't think we've... I thought we've, it was a question. Uh, it, it sort of is. Okay. Have we have we talked about punting other than the fact that Florida State needs to get better? Uh, we haven't. Okay, so uh, the question is, and I thought about this watching Clemson, what's the downside to rugby-style punting? I like it. I mean, I, I, no, it, I'm, it, a, I'm, a, I'm a purist. Terrible, I'm a purist. you more yards exactly. than you're getting the way Florida State's been trying it. The other thing is, when you run that that, that rugby style out, you know, if you're running along three or four or five steps and nobody follows you, just yeah, keep you, running. Just keep running. You got the first. You down. got the first down. I'm a I'm a purist. I grew up with with who I consider the second greatest punter in the history of mankind. The first greatest being Ray Guy. The second being Ron Stark. I I used to catch Ron's punts. When I was uh, the primary returner my sophomore year, he was a freshman. And then when I was the backup returner my junior and senior year, you know, he was still playing. And he would he would kick a ball in ways and in times like I've never seen. I mean, he, he basically was the most valuable offensive player other than Compiece kicking the field goals when we beat Nebraska in 1980. How do you? Where do you find them? Where? Do you, how do you go out and get one? How do you identify them? I, I don't know those answers, uh, but but 
certainly it has to be a high, high, high priority. I think back to when we signed uh, the kid out of Colorado that kicked the extra, kicked the field goal in the national championship. Scott Bentley. Scott Bentley. Florida State had had wide right one, wide right two, and 91 and 92. Got to have a kicker. Got to have a kicker. Got to have a kicker. Go out and find one. He makes Sports Illustrated front page. I think you're at that point. You got to find a punter. You got to find a punter. Logan did a great job. Well, and he was a true freshman. This is more, this goes beyond Logan to me. This is just the concept in general because as I line up the pros, so you mentioned one of them, a little bit easier to to fake a punt there if they don't stay with you and get the first down. Uh, It seems like you're less likely to shank one because the way you kick it, you still get a good bounce. Uh, it but it's, like it's got to be a philosophical change. You got to go to it, the rugby t- it's style It's tougher kicker. to return. Uh, when you think about asking college kickers to keep it out of the end zone or directionally kick, that's not a high success rate because they'll put it out at the 30 or they kick it into the end zone. Whereas if you're rugby style, it, se- it just seems – so I don't know. I'm sure a coach will tell me what the negative side of is it. The downside, but it is, it is philosophical. The downside is we'll get the kid in here and he'll be from Australia – and we won't be able to understand him real well because of we the did dialect. good. Hey, kickers from Poland were good here. I mean, what's wrong with Australia? I'm just saying they have that dialect. I don't all, all the ladies like it. Can you tell it's the off season? We're talking about punting, but I did. You know, I, I, in Australia, it didn't look good. But every time Clemson was netting 38 yards, which is better than what Florida State's doing and, on and a again, 38 yard punt that gets returned 20 repeating yards. Repeating myself, uh, Logan had a good job on kickoffs, and and maybe he'll make some progress in the off season, and maybe there's a technique or whatever. I, I will make the one statement. We'll talk about it in another show, but there's got to be some changes made in who coaches the special teams. Well, and the special teams have to get better as a whole, and we can't get into all that right now. You're right. As a matter of fact, uh, Tom Lang's giving me the evil eye, so I'll step aside. We'll come back. We'll talk uh, to Todd Berry right after this. The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom and Keith. Welcome back to the Front Row. Tom and Keith back with you, and we're going to move our attention from specifically to Florida State to a much broader topic involving all of college football and we're really pleased that the executive director of the afca coach todd barry is able to join us that's the american football coaches association coach barry how are you i'm doing well thanks for having me have you uh are, are you adequately hydrated after uh <laughs> making all the stump speeches the last week at the coaches convention you know i, I think that there's about 180 events actually we have about eight thousand coaches in attendance all the way from the nfl through the high school ranks and and so it's a well-attended convention and about 180 events, and I think I spoke at 92 of them. So I'm I'm starting to come back out of it, but obviously I was just at the NCAA conventions, and as I'm a member of the Oversight Committee, which is uh, a new committee formulated here last year to try to address some of the issues in, in uh, collegiate athletics in particular. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been a busy time, but that's uh, we're excited about being able as coaches to be able to interject our own thoughts in some of these ideas. Well, and we're happy to be number 93 because that's about where we rank, I think. So thank you for squeezing <laughs> us in. Uh, you know, there's 
a, a lot of topics, and, and we obviously know which ones made the biggest headlines last week. But uh, rather than throw one out, I, I'm curious from your standpoint, when I say there's a lot, there's probably eight or ten things that the AFCA took a position on last week. Which are the, the biggest ones uh, in your mind that are at the forefront of the conversation right now? Well, I, I think those ones that are, are are quite honestly on the docket, I think we've been somewhat of a reactionary group, and I think our coaches agree that we need to be more proactive in some of these discussions. So that's the initiative that we're going to try to take with this. And, and so certainly the IAWP, uh, the acronym for Individual Associated with the Prospect, with the camp models the way that they currently were, uh, with the burgeoning staff sizing that we're seeing, uh, there, there needed to be some uh, really some significant reform in that area. And quite honestly, we, we copied an awful lot of it from, from our basketball counterparts uh, as they've already initiated this over a couple-year time frame, and we were able to look at kind of what they did. This was something our Board of Trustees of the AFCA actually recommended to the NCAA Oversight Committee last May, and it was adopted. And I think this is a, I think this is a win for college athletics as a whole. I think that uh, certainly the idea of an early signing date it resonated with our group, and that's been something that we never have been able to coalesce behind. We're excited about that because I think that one of the things that both the coaches and the prospective student-athletes want is they want more transparency in the process and a little bit more freedom for the, the prospective student-athlete. And so we're happy with that, too. I think that certainly, as I mentioned earlier, the camp legislation was a big part of trying to clean up a little bit of a mess that we found ourselves in. And so the coaches were able to interject their thoughts and in trying to clean up a, a, a process that had become very, very messy and uh, a lot of loopholes and so on. The the other thing that I think is still being somewhat discussed is this idea of a, a, an earlier access point for official visits. Certainly we have a demographic out there that is, uh, doesn't have the affluency to be able to travel around to all the different camps and junior days and some of those kind of things, and, and providing that prospective student-athlete an opportunity to take an earlier visit, I, I think is uh, advantageous. We've got to do a very, very good job, I think, as an association, but also the NCAA in, in informing these young people about uh, their these early visits and maybe not utilizing all their early visits too early, uh, which I think is uh, going to be an educational point from our standpoint. And then probably the last one is uh, we really feel strongly that we need to look at the eligibility model. I I don't think there's any interest in a five-for-five, five, but that idea to, to have a five-years-to-play-four model, which we're currently under, I think we need to tweak that a little bit. It's archaic in the sense that it's allowed for uh, years and years to go by here where uh, the games have increased, the number of games that our players are having to play, and the scholarship numbers at the time of this rule were higher than what they are now, and Coaches and players both find themselves in some very precarious situations, especially late in the season when you have injuries and all of a sudden you're having to pull a young man out of his redshirt year when he could have been playing the whole year and you've tried to preserve his redshirt. He has, he plays in one ball game that he loses his redshirt uh, just because you had no depth at a position. That, that's not fair to the student-athlete. That's something that has to be addressed. Todd, I want to go back to the uh, early recruiting, earning signing period. Um, as uh, our listeners may be aware, the, the official – uh, you come play for us goes out on August first, and uh, there, that would be correct. There's converse, There was conversation about an early signing period in August. The position of the uh, associations now is it would be actually in December, and and I, I'm wondering why or how December became a better option than August. Uh, in other words, from the basketball perspective, a basketball player can sign in an early signing period before his season begins. 
why wouldn't a collegiate football player be given that same opportunity? Why do they have to wait to the end of their senior year if they know where they want to go and the school wants them? Yeah, I think that uh, trying to compare models, I think, can be sometimes problematic because of the numbers that we're dealing with. Uh, while I, I understand the rationale behind it, I think one of the things that our coaches wanted to do was they want that we've been talking about a December model for quite some time. Uh, certainly, we have a number of young people now that are even graduating from high school or even going on to attend college. And so I think as the landscape has changed, we, we're anxious to look at other dates, other time frames, even potentially before their senior year. But we also recognize, too, in our sport, uh, there is significant development during that fall semester for a lot of student-athletes. A lot of them, in many cases, are playing for the first time. And I think that that physical development is much different than basketball. And I'll uh, certainly respect our our basketball counterparts immensely. Uh, But, you know, um, there's no way that you could take the top 22 freshmen in in high school, take them to one school, and think that you're going to win the national championship. It's just not feasible because of the physical development that's required in football. Uh, That's already been proven in basketball that you can take five true freshmen and win a national championship. I think it's just – I think we're trying to compare apples and oranges when we do that. I think the December date gives that early access point uh, in relation to signing. Uh, it provides some transparency. And then basically, as we look at that December model, if we get a high number of individuals that are signing in December, I don't know that it's going to be as significant as a lot of people think. But if we get a high one there, then I think we need to look at an earlier date. Well, I certainly think it's a good start. Uh, and much like uh, the conversation, which we won't get into, is whether it should be four or eight in the playoff. <laughs> Time will tell as we go down the road. Yeah. I'm interested, no, that, too. The, the market will drive that Exactly, up, exactly. When I signed with Florida State in the late 70s, which means I'm old as dirt, uh, well, I'm right there with you, so yeah, I, I guess we're, we're both there in the dirt. Exactly. Uh, the limitation was 105. Uh, that limitation is now down to 85. Uh, game maximum games in the late 70s, early 80s was 12. Maximum games 15. So this this 85 scholarship limitation, I think, is is time to be revisited along with the tenth coach. And I know both of those proposals are very close to the heart for your your members and your members and your your association folk. Yeah, the tenth coach in particular, I think, per NCAA's research and and thought is. Uh, actually, uh, the FBS football has the lowest percentage of coach-to-player ratio of any group in the sense that we have the, the highest numbers, I should say, in relation to the number of coaches, probably the number of players per coach. And so obviously that that, that needs to probably change because I think uh, for most institutions at that level, you know, uh, football is, is, is during the most prominent sport and uh, the one that is probably the most active throughout the course of the whole year. And so thusly, that didn't make a lot of sense. And, I'm, and so we're excited that the NCAA is looking at that, uh, had forwarded that, obviously, for for further consideration. I think the scholarship numbers, I, I don't get the same thing from our coaches in relation to that. I think that what our coaches would like to have is a little bit more flexibility. To that point, uh, this year, West Virginia, for instance, just to give a, a, a profile example, but this happens – at every institution this year, West Virginia had to pull a running back out in the tenth ball game of the season, and he had to start. He he played sparingly in the in the games after because the running back position all of a sudden they had uh, they'd had some injuries, and those guys started kind of coming back. And here's a young man that had to burn his whole redshirt year when he could have been playing special teams and all those other kinds of things for basically one and a half games. That that is really really not fair to to the the student athlete nor even the coach that has to 
uh, be involved in something like that. Tom and Keith here on the front row, and we're talking with longtime coach Todd Berry, currently the executive director of the American Football Coaches Association. He's kind enough to join us via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline. KJ? Well, one of the other things I was going to mention to Todd, there's no extra charge for this, but I'm on the adjunct <laughs> faculty at Florida State as well. And I will tell you that one of the main measuring uh, metrics uh, when you rank universities is faculty-to-student ratio. So I would suggest to you that you can win over some of your academic folks with this 10th coach rule by, look, you guys measure it this way. This is the way we need to measure it as well. No extra charge for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. All of us need to be collaborative, I think, in in this whole process of this this whole scholastic athletic model. Let me clarify for our audience what the next steps are here because you uh, and the AFCA came out in support of for example, the the December signing date last week at the convention, and I think yesterday or last night uh, that was moved forward by the football oversight committee. So, how many Correct. more hurdles have to be cleared before we will, or, or for us to actually have a December signing date as soon as December of twenty seventeen? Well, there, there's a lot of different ways that the NCAA can legislate, and and for those that don't know, the the NCAA is basically it forwards and combines concepts from different universities and different conferences. It's not its own entity out there that's basically regulating collegiate football. Uh, It takes all of its um, ideas, thoughts, and direction basically from the member institutions from every university. If you really want to get down to who is the NCAA, it's the presidents of universities. So there is multiple ways that this thing can move forward. The most likely move would be for probably the council to vote first, and then it goes out to membership. And then membership has an opportunity to comment on the proposal itself with an idea that in April there would be a vote on the current model or a vote in relation to amending the current model. And so uh, there is a process that that still needs to happen with probably the idea that in April is when we're really going to know the exact results. Well, listen, I, I, we appreciate the fact that uh, you carved time for us. Uh, you got to get on to, to speaking engagement number 94. I, 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 do, hope, actually, I hope that's right in Montana one. somewhere or something like that. I mean, we need to feel good about being 93, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I know it's, uh, it's a busy time, and uh, some of these are uh, much-needed changes, in my opinion. So thanks for they joining are. us, Coach. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. These are things that we need to be taking on, and, and again, we're excited to be um, a part of that interaction and, and looking forward to making this experience a wonderful experience for both the student-athlete and for our fan bases. Todd, thank you for your time. Best wishes. My pleasure. Thank you, fellas. That is the executive director of the American Football Coaches Association, Todd Berry, longtime coach, uh, three-plus decades uh, in the in the coaching business and knows of what he speaks. I'll remind you that if you've got a do-it-yourself project, that needs to be finished, go visit Ron and his knowledgeable staff at Cornerstone Tool and Fastener to get all your power tool needs. Two locations to choose from, 1110 Stuckey Avenue and 3269 Crawfordville Highway. Call them at 580-1200 or visit them online at www.ctf.nu. Okay, we've got uh, just a little bit of time to react as we finish up the show. You look like you'd like to react now, however. Uh, just one comment. The, the uh, IAWP legislation... Most of our listeners have no idea what this is. This is kids that grow up in a household that don't have a nuclear family. And how and when do you recognize who is their acknowledged advisor and who can you pay to come on an official visit? Who can you 
acknowledge to listen to for conversations and in terms of I would like to on my visit talk to the dean of the College of Business and learn more about the risk management program. How do you identify who that key person is and they get recognized like 30 or 40 years ago you used to recognize mom and dad. And that that sounds uh, different and it may be foreign to many of our listeners but it is a key component of how the recruiting process takes goes forward. Long time, 10 years or more in basketball, now raising its head in football. And it's just an interesting dynamic on what's going on in America. All right. With that said, we'll step aside, come back, and have some final thoughts on this week's Front Row. The Front Row is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener. Two locations to choose from, 1110 Stuckey Avenue and 3269 Crawfordville Highway. Call them at 580-1200 or online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. We don't have a whole lot of time to react uh, to what Todd Berry said there, but uh, so the early signing period... I'm in favor. I don't disagree with your thought, Keith, that uh, going even earlier. But good, you got to walk. Good first step. Good first. You got to walk before you run. I, I think it will turn into all the guys that are early enrollees right now. They'll be the ones who sign in December. Well, they don't even have to. There's the way you sign that financial aid thing. Right. You go ahead and commit. But I don't. But I don't think schools are going to sign 25 kids in the early signing period. You're going to get some out of the way and still have half, and 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 that's the way it'll be. The redshirt rule makes a lot of sense to me. A lot of sense. I, I mean, it's kind of silly. Uh, well, Nate Andrews, I guess, didn't get healthy. I'm trying to think of an FSU example. But Todd provided a couple of examples, and it, it just would make sense. It would eliminate it, the issue of burning a red shirt later in the year. It would eliminate the issue of making up, fabricating an injury for somebody so you can apply for a medical hardship. Let's be honest. The other thing it does, and, and Todd was very pronounced about this, and it's a delicate subject, but it does keep the player engaged because some of the high-profile problems at Florida State and at Florida and at the University of Miami have been kids during their redshirt season when they weren't expecting to play and therefore were not paying attention. Tenth coach, uh, obviously That's coach, a no-brainer. coaches are in favor of it. He articulated the point well. Didn't talk about it, but the communications issue is another thing. Uh, the ability for the coordinator to talk to the quarterback via electronics like the nfl does you know the headset in the helmet so to speak we can expound on that in coming weeks 10th coach would it be a position coach would it be a recruiting coach how would you divvy that up it'd be both in other words it'd be a recruiting coach and you'd have an extra coach out in the recruiting because remember they're going to deaden another week because of the camps they're going to make the early signing period which takes away some of the effort let's go ahead and leave them out there that would be an excuse to maybe restrict them and not let them coach off site but if they're there let them recruit all right, we are done. He's Keith. I'm Tom. Enjoy the game tonight, and I we didn't will get talk the to you. Call by the way, did you? Which call is that? On the college football committee? No, they didn't call and ask for my opinion. They asked for Frank Beamer and Gene Smith and Chris Howard to join them. Barry Alvarez, Condoleezza Rice, Lloyd Carr rotate off, and neither one of us got a call. No, so we will not be part of the CFP next year. Dang it! So direct your complaints elsewhere. Perhaps next week to the front row. Talk to you then. Yeah. Yeah.